Well, we are in week five of a five-week sermon series on the Bible and emotions. And this week, uh, we're going to be talking about guilt slash shame. Guilt and shame. Before we jump into that emotion, I want to just remember the big picture, big scope of what we've been talking about. Uh, and it's going to come up on your screen. Number one, the Bible speaks to all emotions. Every one of them. Happiness, sadness, depression, guilt, shame, frustration, fear, all those things. Anger. Read through the Psalms, you'll get anger. Uh, Number two, it's normal and okay to experience all the emotions. The Bible speaks about all emotions as part of the human condition. Then it's going to be normal for you to experience all of these emotions at one time or another. That's okay. And number three, uh, we worship God with all of our emotions. The goal of a study on the Bible and emotions is so that we can learn how to worship God in all of our emotions. If those three things are true, then there are three implications for our life. Number one... Our emotions are a gauge, not a guide. They're a gauge. Our emotions come up on the dashboard of our life to indicate that something else is there, something else is going on. Number two, the Bible becomes our guide. And number three, knowing Jesus is our goal. So in this whole series, we're going to talk about an emotion. We're going to talk about what it means in our life and how we can kind of go to Scripture and find a solution to this emotional situation we find ourselves in. And then, therefore, we're going to try to drive that home towards worship of Jesus, which has been our goal. This week, I want to talk about guilt. Um, and um, this has been really interesting. I was talking with a counselor about this um, earlier today. And um, Carrie, who was here last week, if you remember, we have counseling ministry here. Super good. I was talking with Carrie on the phone about this. I said, hey, here's what I think about guilt. What do you have? You're the expert. And so we talked about it uh, through. Uh, and we, kind of t- we, we arrived at this very interesting uh, juxtaposition, if you will. Because remember last week we talked about happiness. And this, this is actually going to come up on your screen. And uh, Colton, it's a little out of order there on the slide. So we'll just throw that up there. And here's something Satan's convinced us of. Two lies Satan has convinced, uh, convinced Americans of. Number one, that we can be happy all the time. That we can be happy all the time. And number two, that we can feel ashamed all the time. Right? Think about this. Last week we looked at this. Uh, from our very constitution to our advertising to the stories we tell our children to the music we listen to in all spheres of American life, it drives us towards this end of being happy, the pursuit of happiness. But the problem is no one's happy all the time. If you're happy all the time, there's something wrong with you, right? If you go to a sad movie and come out going, (laughs) there's something wrong, right? That's not normal. We should experience a range of emotions. Happiness is not something we can get all the time. But Satan will tell us the goal in this life is for you to be happy all the time. And if you're not happy all the time, you're a bad person. No, that's just not true. If you're not happy all the time, you're a normal person, okay? Likewise, what I think uh, the devil does to us is he tells us and convinces us that if we experience shame and guilt because of something that happened to us or something we did, that we should feel that shame and guilt all the time for the rest of our life as some kind of atonement we pay to ourselves, some, some way we try to make it up to ourselves. And again, that's simply not true. And so if you're someone who is here today who's struggling with shame and guilt or some, you know someone who is, I, I just want to help you understand this good news here, and it's this. I want you to remember that guilt is a feeling that alerts us to the fact that something else is going on just below the surface. Guilt is a feeling. Shame is a feeling. It's okay to feel guilt and shame momentarily. And when you do, it's, it's, a, it's a gauge on our dashboard that, that tells us something else is going on just below the surface, and we need to address it. 
And so what I want to do today, just very practically and simply, is just to look at two uh, big instances of guilt shame in Scripture because I believe they speak to the two kind of major ways we, we process and experience guilt um, in our lives. And I want to see at the end what the solution is. And the way that we're going to kind of work through this is we're going to look at two stories, okay? Um, or that we're going to look at three stages, I should say. We're going to look at three stages of guilt. We're going to look at two stories or two types of guilt. And then we're going to look at two myths that we need to address in terms of practical application. So just to repeat, three stages of guilt, two stories, um, two myths we need to work through. So here we go. We'll jump on in. Here are the three stages I want to talk about first. And um, again, these are not technical. It's not like the you know, five stages of uh, you know, grieving or anything like that. This is just kind of an observation looking at things. And so I just want to give you this framework, and I want to show you how this framework appears over and over again in Scripture. And also, if we think about it, it appears in our life, okay? The, the kind of the three stages or the three ways we process through guilt. So stage one or phase one is the initial trauma of any particular situation, okay? The initial trauma. We experience something, okay? It happens to us, and we're traumatized by it. And then we move on to phase two, which is the questioning, um, and, and in either case, we are, we are either saying, on the one hand, um, man, I can't believe I did that. I should have been smarter. And we get into the whole should thing where we're just, I should have done this and I should have done that. If I had done all these things, then it wouldn't have led to this situation I found myself in, right? Just, you know, that thing. Or the, in the other case, the other common example, it's why did this happen to me? Why didn't God prevent this from happening to me? Why did God allow this to come into my life, right? So questioning, initial trauma questioning, number three, we get to disillusionment, disillusionment. And that's a feeling of just rejection, abandonment, uh, discord with what's going on in the world. And here's the thing, and this is, I'll just go ahead and front load this. One of the reasons we bring our counselors up each week and one of the reasons we talk about this is because, and you'll hear this with our testimony later on today, is because if you will, as a matter of discipline, find a counselor after, the, after stage one, after the initial trauma, a, a counselor is trained to walk with you through the questioning to help spare you or to help you kind of mitigate the disillusionment, okay? That's one of the values of counseling. And so if in the future you ever find yourself having a traumatic experience and you're like, oh, you're aware, I just had some trauma, It'd be really good for you to go find a mentor or someone who can get you connected with a counselor to help you process through the questioning to mitigate against the disillusionment, okay? Just think. Now, if you're someone who had trauma and you went through uh, the questioning and you become disillusioned, counseling can still help you work backwards through the first two stages to deal with the trauma and process in a healthy way and, again, still mitigate some of that disillusionment. So it's not you have to do this or not. It's not like this is the last helicopter out of Vietnam and you got to get on this. And No, there, there's, I don't want, it's not that crazy. You, you just, you, it's important for someone who loves Jesus and who's kind of trained and how the brain works and the soul and the emotions all work together to help you process through this in healthy ways, okay? Now, at that point, understanding these three kind of, the, the framework of grieving, or I'm sorry, the framework of, of shame and guilt, uh, what I want to do is I want to look at the two most common examples in Scripture. On the one hand, I'll just tell you, it's I did something and I feel shame as a result. And the second common example is something happened to me and I feel shame as a result, okay? And I tell you this up front because I want you to know no matter where you are on that spectrum or here today, if you're someone who struggles with shame and guilt, guess what? The Bible speaks to all emotions and yes, it even speaks to shame and guilt, 
Okay? And not a just uh, there were bad people and they experienced shame and guilt. No, real people who follow Jesus and they love them, they love him, they experience this. Okay? So I just want to look at the truth of Scripture to help be our guide here. So if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 3, we're going to read the story that we have been processing through on Sundays with Pastor David. It's the story of the fall. And we're going to start in, um, well, we'll just kind of start in the beginning. We'll read through. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, Eve, uh, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, let's just think about this. When I was Growing up, especially when I was around six years old, this new phenomenon came out called Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, okay? I'm not talking about turtles in 3D or Ninja Turbo Turtles or any of the stuff you have today, although those are fine examples of the franchise. I'm talking about the video game and the comic books and the original TV show and the original film and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 starring Vanilla Ice. I'm talking about that era of Ninja Turtles. How many of you have seen Ninja Turtles 2 starring Vanilla Ice? Secret of the Ooze, right? Ninja Rap, yeah, that's on your iPods, right? Y'all are like, I don't use iPods anymore. I have a phone. Gosh, what is this, 2005? Come on. Anyway, um, yeah, so when that happened, I saw Ninja Turtles, and I was the kind of kid who... When I saw a movie, that wasn't, you know, superheroes weren't just kind of these figures in creative span, in the creative, you know, world. Those were job opportunities, right? Those were career plans. And so, like anything I saw, I was like, I'm in. Like I, like I saw Ninja Turtles, I was like, wait a second. These guys run around in their underwear, and they carry like weapons, and they eat pizza all the time. This is the life, right? As a six-year-old, I'm like, this is life. So here's what I did. I would make little loincloths for myself, like little Ninja Turtle loincloths, and it would barely cover up, you know, that area. And I would run, I'll, I'll, I'll post pictures maybe later to social media if you follow me on Instagram, at Doug Hankins, maybe later. I don't know, that might actually be sketchy. Don't do that, is that a bad idea? Okay, I'll show you guys next week, right before Easter. Like, let's talk about Jesus, but first, let me show you Ninja Turtle, Doug. No, um, <laughs> But yeah, that's, that's the idea here, right? You can imagine there's like a little underwear thing cover, barely covering the area. And, and I give you that imagery um, uh, j- just to let you know this is what's going on. When they say, hey, they put little loincloths on, it wasn't just like, hey, you know, let's just maybe put some, you know, unmentionables on and kind of keep going with our day. No, there's something going on here. These people were, were, were naked before, Adam and Eve, but they now are covering themselves, uh, you get the imagery there? They're, they're covering up a little bit. There's, there's some shame going on. They made a decision. Now they feel guilty. The consequences have set in. Their eyes were opened. They're ashamed. And now they're covering themselves up. They are moving from stage one, the trauma, to the questioning. Ooh, that may have not been a bad decision. What did I do? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. This is so terrible. That's what's happening to them. They're naked and ashamed. This is the classic example of 
uh, guilt and shame. I did something, and as a consequence, I'm processing through. And if you read through the rest of Genesis 3, you'll notice that they're processing through this. They're hiding from God. God comes in. He tries to talk to them. They're one, they once had this great fellowship with them. Now they feel like there's some distance between them. They're trying to kind of work their way around through. There's all this internal stuff going on in their heads. Why did I do this? I was so dumb. I should have listened to God, all this stuff, right? And for many of us here who've experienced guilt and shame, that's us, right? We don't listen to our parents. We don't listen to our teachers. We don't obey the speed limit. We get caught. It's like the snow cone lights come on in the background, boo, and then, you know, we pull over on the side, and the police officer is like, license and registration, and we're just sitting there like, stupid, stupid, stupid. I should not have been going 95 on I-4 in the middle of rush hour. That was a bad idea, right? Like, it was, I shouldn't have pulled over on the margin and passed up everybody who was obeying the law just to get around so that I could get to Universal, right? Right, this is the kind of thing they're going on, but on like a cosmic level. And so they're feeling the, the guilt and the shame, and they're becoming disillusioned. So if we keep reading, here's what happens. In verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves, right? They are full-on shame mode here. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And now this is... This is classic man. Uh, this is like man logic. You can tell he's kind of like just processing through things here. Because any real man would be like, I'm right here. This is on me. I'm sorry. You know, like, you know, singing the Tim McGraw song, don't take the girl, God. Just, you know, it's me, right? This is what a man would do. But this is what Adam does because he's dealing with shame. Verse 10, they said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault, right? Again, full on, I mean, we do dumb things sometimes when we're walking through shame and guilt. It affects us in all those ways. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, oh, the serpent, you know, the serpent did it, right? She's passing the buck to you. And now God, through the next couple of verses, goes through all these things. Because of this, here are your consequences uh, here's what's going to happen. We'll just kind of stop there. There's disillusionment that set, sets in. They get kicked out of the garden. Now they can never go back. Now when Adam works, it's going to be laborious. Now Eve, when she's pregnant, there's going to be pain and childbearing. It's going to be, you know, there's just all these consequences, and they're grappling with it. They're disillusioned. Genesis 3 could be the, called the, the chapter of disillusionment of man. We are fallen now. And now every human being who's born is born into this sin and the world is broken, it's not as it should be, and this causes socially just mass dis, uh, disillusionment, right? That's example one. It's example one right there. Now, example two happens just a few books later in 2 Samuel chapter 13. So if you have that, flip on over or swipe on over, um, and we'll jump in there. 2 Samuel chapter 13. The first was, I did it, I have the consequences, and I walked through the three stages. Second, uh, Second Samuel 13 is, this happened to me, and therefore I walked through the stages. And I want you to just read with me. This is called um, the story of uh, the, the rape of Tamar. And in verse 7, or just to kind of set it up, there's a, there's a guy who wants to get with this woman named Tamar, uh, and Tamar says, no, I don't want this. Um, and uh, he happens to be a family member, um, and, um, and he advances on her, and she doesn't want it, and so 
the family member comes up with a way to get Tamar to come over to his house and cook him a meal, right? This is like the ultimate uh, kind of frat guy move uh, that's going on there. Not to knock all frat guys, but we, we know those stories. In verse 7, then David uh, sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother, and this family member happens to be a brother, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Amnon asked the king, David, his father, to send his sister over to his house. That was his pickup move. Okay, this is not a high caliber human being right now. Verse eight, so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. That should have been the first clue, right? I mean, this is, this is not a good situation. She took dough when she needed it. And she made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone away from me. So everyone went out from him. Again, second really bad situation. Can you imagine Tamar in this moment? Came over under false pretenses. He's not eating the food. Something's off here. This is a pretty terrible situation. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes and she made and brought them to him, uh, to the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near, uh, near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And if you wanna be crystal clear in what the Bible says about this type of sexual experience and rape, it's called an outrageous thing. So rape is not something we joke about. It's not something that's that's viewed in these glorious terms, it is an outrageous thing. Just make sure I'm very clear on that. Verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my, and there's this word, shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her, and he lay with her. So the trauma's now happened, and I want you to note how she begins to question and process through this. And the Bible is very clear on this. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So the, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. So now sin has poisoned him. And he's having a psychological reaction here to what's going on. He's feeling all these new emotions come in because he's done this terrible thing. And he knows it. He knows he's aware of it, knows it's an outrageous thing. And so he sends her out. So now she's got the shame of being raped and now being forced to enter into this walk of shame uh, within Israel, which is very conservative at this time. This is just, just tragic. Verse 16, but she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. She's already starting to question and work through things here. But he would not listen to her. Verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. What a coward. Verse 18, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus the virgin daughters of the king uh, dressed this way. So that his servant put her out and bolted the door after her in verse 19. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud. She went. She's processing through this. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Terrible advice to give at this time period if friends come to you and mention this. Don't do that. Verse, uh, verse 20, continuing. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, that word desolate, it means disillusioned. So we've seen how this works. Something happens, there's trauma. She processes through it, and now she's disillusioned. This is the second type of guilt and shame. And unfortunately, the statistic in America is this, and you should know this, that something like one in four women um, have been victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. And the amount of guilt and shame that they have to process through this, it's not just the, the event itself, that's shameful. It's everything after that that goes on. And, and, and this, along with the first one, because I don't want to minimize the first one, both of them are equally uh, horrendous experiences here in their own right, um, because they all lead us to process through these things and have to sit in such guilt and shame. And there are some horrible things people can do and have done that just brings on horrible shame through the consequences. And something like rape or something like this, trauma, a family member's taken away, you get cancer early, something like that, that happens to you, just brings about this horrible feeling of, of guilt that's just around you all the time. And if you're not careful, you're, you're led to believe one of two myths, and there are two myths I want to talk about uh, here today. The first myth is this. First myth is this. Number one, that I see my shame all the time. And so, as a result, I assume that most people see it all the time. Because either you have shame from something you've done or something that's happened to you, you tend to remember it and think about it all the time. Maybe you learn to define yourself as a survivor or as a victim, or maybe you turn, tend to you know, define yourself as someone who is, you know, uh, I, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I'm a, a cancer survivor. Uh, I'm someone who is in a car, you know, in a car wreck that killed somebody. I was a drunk driver. I'm a recovering alcoholic, right? However you tend to define yourself in light of that guilt and shame, there's a tendency for you, even as believers in Christ, to go, here's how I'm going to identify. I'm someone who has shame all the time, and I just know everybody, when they see me, it's the first thing they see, especially when you tell your story to someone in confidence. You say, this is part of my life. You just, there's this moment where you go, oh my gosh, this is, they're now going to think of me, they're going to describe me that way for the rest of my life. I'm never going to be able to outrun this shame. And so here's what I want to do. I want to do two things. I want to give you an axiom, just a little truth that I think is important, and then I want to take you to scripture just to let you know what's going on here, because this is a myth. I just want to make sure I say that a lot. This is not true. And the reason it's not true, something that God has given us that we all hate, but it's actually very beautiful in this moment, it's that we're all incredibly selfish people right? I mean, when you wake up in the morning, you don't look in the mirror at somebody else. You look in the mirror at yourself, right? Because we're selfish. And that's to our advantage, especially in the situation, because this axiom is true. And I called Carrie, the counselor, and I said, this is something I want to bring up. And she's like, Doug, if you can only say one thing, please just say this. If I could tell all my clients this, I would tell them this one thing. Here's the axiom. People are not thinking about you as much as you think people are thinking about you. People aren't thinking about you, as much as you think people are thinking about you. They're just not. I don't care how beautiful or great or wonderful or talented or whatever you are. I don't care if you're a celebrity. People, they just don't have enough capacity to fixate on you all the time because they're spending the vast majority of their time fixating on themselves, right? People, we're all selfish. 
And so if you meet somebody or someone meets you and you kind of get to know them, there's chemistry, so it becomes your ministry. You meet with them, you get into life groups, you kind of share and confess some things, right? And then maybe they tease you later on or whatever. They're not teasing you because they know that about your story, right? They probably completely forgot about that because they're thinking about themselves. Most of us think about ourselves. So this is really good news when it comes to situations like guilt and shame. People aren't thinking about you. Now, they may remember that, but they're not thinking about it all the time. If you're thinking about something in your life that's a, a moment of guilt and shame, brings up guilt and shame, there's a very good chance literally no one else in the universe is thinking about that, okay? The only other person that's thinking about that is God. Because the only being who thinks about you more than you think about you is God. Because he created the universe and he set forth this redemption plan with you in mind. Okay? Not because it's all about you, but because it's all about his glory. And God knows that he's most glorified when you are most satisfied in who he is. And so he's thinking about ways to grow you and, and make sure that you are all that you can be. He's thinking about working all this together. Now, we know this because there's this verse in Romans 8.28. If you haven't memorized it, I encourage you to do so. But I just want to attach this to this myth too. And here's what happens in Romans 8.28. Paul writes this, And we know that for all those who love God, all of those who are in Christ, this isn't for everybody, okay? But those of you who are in Christ, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is thinking about you more than you're thinking about you. But he's not thinking about your happiness. He's thinking about your holiness. And he is working all things together to produce good in you, to multiply your character in you, and to move you into the kind of person who reflects Christ's character. Remember, you're adulting. God is adulting in you. He's trying to grow you up into all things, especially uh, your relationship with Christ. And so, yes, there is someone who, when they see you, they're always thinking about you, but they're not thinking about your, sh your shame and your guilt. This, this God of the universe is thinking about your growth, and so people around you, your friends, they're not thinking about your guilt and shame. You might be momentarily, but when you take that to God, just know this. He is trying to maximize and work all of his supernatural being to move you towards holiness, not shame and guilt. That's not what he has for us. So that's myth number one. Myth number two is this. Myth number two is this. That when God looks at me, all he can see is my bad situation. All he can see is that event, right? When God looks at me, all he can see is my bad situation. Um, there's this uh, kind of question, diagnostic question that, that counselors will ask. And from time to time when I'm meeting with people that I do one-on-ones with or, you know, if you're in UCF Life Group, I'm generally at, at UCF's campus on Wednesdays and occasionally I'll open up. I'll be, I'm at the Starbucks, so people show up and we'll talk, and occasionally I'll just kind of throw this question out. Uh, and it goes like this. Hey, if God sat down with you at this coffee shop, what would he say to you? What would the first thing that would come out of his mouth? And you ask this question because it will reveal what people think God thinks about them. It's a great question. So next time you're doing a one-on-one -on -one or you meet with someone and you're maybe concerned that they don't have a, a, a good worldview, maybe if it's a non-believer, you can ask him, if God sat down, what would be the first thing that came out of his mouth about you? And typically, people who are struggling or are walking in shame and guilt, they'll say something like this. God would tell me I really need to quit sinning in this area. And for believers, it's really interesting. It's really revealing that so much of us struggle with sin management. 
Like our gospel is just behavior modification. I've got to do better. And you have all this shame, all the sin you're involved with. And so they think when God sits down, he's going to say, oh, well, you know, I know about that one sin in your life. You keep doing that and the consequences are coming in, but you're not listening and, and all that stuff's going on, right? But that's, that's just not the reality. When God looks at you, it's not that all he can see is your sin or your bad situation and all that. The truth of the matter is this. The truth of the matter is uh, the Passover. The truth of the matter is that when God sees you, he looks through the blood of Jesus and he sees a child of God. If you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he looks through the lens of the blood of Jesus. He sees Jesus. So therefore, he sees someone who's a son of God and so, or a daughter of God. So if God sat down in a conversation with you and the first thing that would come out of his mouth would not be, oh, I see that sin in your life. He would say, well done, my child. I'm so pleased in you. I love you so much. I'm so just thrilled that we have a relationship together. And we know this because of something like the Passover. And so uh, I'm not going to ask you to move over there, but in Exodus 12, 23, it's really interesting. It's when the Passover first happens. Um, basically, uh, Moses tells everybody in, in Israel, everyone who's a child of God, everyone, to take the blood of a lamb, like slaughter a perfect lamb, take the blood, they kind of dip it with a little, you know, Hebrew paintbrush or whatever, and they, you post it over the, the doorframe at the entrance of your house, right? So just, you know, the HOA probably wouldn't be on board with that, but that's just kind of how it rolled in Israel at the time. Egyptian HOAs, really cruel, yes. So, but nonetheless, pass, you know, take, take the uh, blood, put it over there, and just kind of rest there. And during the Passover, the angel of death, the destroyer, was going to come through and he was going to take the life of the firstborn of anybody who didn't have blood over uh, the doorpost. And so came through and that's what happened. I want you to just uh, look at this verse here at Exodus 12, 23. Here's, here's kind of the conclusion of that story. It says, when he, when God sees the blood on the, the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's something really symbolic about all of this. Because when Jesus came, he's described as the perfect lamb. He lives a sinless life. And then at some point, under God's providential plan, he goes to the cross and he dies. And when he dies, he sheds his blood. And then after three days, he rises from the dead, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection at Easter. But let's just hang on for a minute there at the crucifixion itself and the atonement. When he dies and he, uh, cover, he, his blood is shed, the truth of the gospel is, is that when we believe in Jesus, we are like those Hebrew people. We step into the home of Jesus with his blood covering us. And so when God looks at us, he will not allow the destroyer of guilt, to enter our house and strike us. He will not allow the destroyer of shame enter our house and strike us. He will not allow the destroyer of sin to enter our house and strike us. That's no more. That's the good news of the gospel. 
The truth of the gospel is when God looks at you, it doesn't matter what your past is, whether you've done just terrible things and you just have this laundry list of all these consequences that follow you around, or whether something terrible happens to you, when God looks at you, he doesn't go rape victim or, you know, speeder or, you know, habitual liar or person who's in panic all the time or, you know, person who's really arrogant, egocentric. Or He doesn't say any of that. When he looks at you, if you're under the blood of Christ, he just says, child, I'm so pleased in you. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. Period. End of story. No more. And so guilt and shame... It can, it, it can be, in that framework, a feeling we might experience. It doesn't have to be something that's forever, right? The only thing that's forever in the life of a believer is the love of Christ.